This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. You're listening to Bookmark with me, Uma Pagan Ampke Pagan. Joining me on the show today is author Paul French. He was one of the many featured authors at this year's edition of the Singapore Writers Festival, where I caught up with him to talk about his latest book, City of Devils, a Shanghai Noah. Hello, my name is Paul French, and I'm the author of the books Midnight in Peking and City of Devils. I would love to talk to you about City of Devils today, but uh, before I get into that, give us an idea of when you landed in China and why you decided to stay. Well, I, I went there as a as a student, as a language student, so I was a, a much younger man than I am now. Uh, so I arrived in the 1980s and um, to Shanghai, and um, it was a very, very different city to today. I was just going to say, what was Shanghai like in the 80s? Well, it was a low-level city. It was as if a dust sheet had been thrown over it and, um, and then just pulled off. But nothing had happened because when Deng Xiaoping started to let China open up, um, Shanghai was the very last city that they let open up, not until the 90s, because, of course, Shanghai had been this incredibly capitalistic right. open city. And Deng was very worried. The party was very worried that if they let Shanghai open too soon, it would just swamp everybody else and grab all the business for itself. So they, they kept it down for a long time, which was very nice for me. So they used to switch the traffic lights off at sort of half past seven at night because there wasn't enough cars. You wow. Um, you, could, you could sort of hear the boats on the river with the horns and so on. Um, everything was very low level and, and absolutely lovely. Millions of bicycles, of course, as you'd expect. Of course. But also very basic. So when we were at university, you know, we had hot water for half an hour a day. The food was, disappointingly to me, who decided to study Chinese largely after having Chinese food in Chinatown in London. <laughs> and thought, So I go for two years to China. The British government pays me to do this. I have to learn the language, but I get to eat all this great food every day, you know, and I don't have to eat English food for two years. It's going to be fantastic. But when I got there, of course, in China at that time, Food was terrible because, you know, they weren't, there was many vegetables that they still weren't growing. Right. There wasn't enough meat and people didn't really have very high expectations. So there. what was the appeal? I mean, other than being on the frontier of something. Well, it, it did feel like a, a very interesting place. Funnily enough, bizarrely, the Queen had just been to China because they were just getting into the handover negotiations over Hong Kong. And so there'd been a lot of China on the television. I also used to watch a lot of Hong Kong movies on TV. And I sort of made the mistake of thinking, you know, when you see those Hong Kong movies and it's all the neon and the fantastic streets of Hong Kong. I made the mistake of thinking that all of China was like that. Right. But it wasn't. It was only Hong Kong. So uh, that was a bit of a mistake. Um, and the other thing was just the language. I mean, you know, the, the character-driven language, that cracking the code of Chinese, this language that everyone told you was so impossible to learn, was just like an irresistible challenge. And I thought, in those days, of course, you know, you got a grant to go to university, yeah. you didn't have to pay. So it was almost like a free ride for a few years. So you could take a chance on what you did. Because if, yeah. you, if you kind of screwed up, you had a chance to go back and do something else. And at which point did you decide, no, 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 this is the place for me, I'm going to stay here? Well, to be honest, not immediately. I mean, I enjoyed... I enjoyed it, and then I went back to England, and there wasn't a lot you could do with a degree in East Asian Studies or Chinese. Well, not then, anyway. No, not then. At that time, of course, everyone would say, why don't you do Japanese? Right. So everyone who was studying Chinese was going to end up as an English teacher, and everyone who was doing Japanese was going to be an investment banker. Well, about halfway through our course, things turned around completely. Of course. And everyone who did Japanese ended up teaching English and living in a shoebox in Tokyo. And we all ended up getting very good jobs and being much, much demanded. But it didn't feel like that around the time of Tiananmen 
square. Of course not. It felt like this was the silliest decision you could have ever made and that China was going to be just isolated forever. But of course, it didn't work like that. And um, the boom in the economy continued. The great demand for, for Chinese speakers and people who under, oh, you know, knew a bit about China. So what happened was that all the banks, all the advertising agencies, all the law firms, everyone felt that it was easier to take a Chinese speaker and teach them advertising or banking than it was to take a banker and teach them Chinese. It was easier to do it the other way around, <laughs> yes. right? You know, like banking is not that complicated. Advertising is not that complicated. Chinese is really complicated. So all of a sudden, it, it became like a really smart life choice. And of course, having lived in China from that point to date, you have a very unique perspective in that I think you can see China for what it really is. Because at the moment, when I read op-eds and I read analysis, so much of it is from the outside looking in. Mm. And I'm curious as to what that's like for you, for someone who's lived there for so long, for someone who knows the people, the culture, and the way the city and also the way the country has evolved. Is that annoying? Well, I think, uh, yeah, it's a sort of 20, almost 30 year ride in trying to understand China and the Chinese. And I think maybe even after you've studied the language, even after you've lived there for so long, worked there for so long, you maybe get a millimeter under the surface of the country, uh, which is a lot further than most other people are going to go, but it's still not very far. Um, they always used to say that if you went to China for a week, you could write a book about it. If you went to China for six months, you'd be lucky if you could think, write a postcard because you know the contradictions and, and, the, and the problems you see and the things you don't understand just multiply the more, the more you walk around. Um, it's such a vast country to cover. So I, I spent, I've spent all my time in Shanghai, but you know, even if you, you get up to Beijing regularly or down to Hong Kong regularly, you know, getting to, in, in, even in 20, 30 years, how many times can you go to Chengdu, to Qingdao, right. to Shenyang, to Harbin, to Changchun, to Kunming, you know? I mean, most of those places I've only managed to get to a handful of times. Um, so understanding these, these vast provinces that are the size of Europe, you know, it, uh, you know and, and, and a province over here that's the size of Southeast Asia, it's so incredibly difficult, as well as trying to understand the wider Chinese world that involves Singapore and Malaysia and Hong Kong and Macau and wherever there are Chinese people. It, it's, it's a vast subject. Yeah, which makes it practically impossible when people start referring to China as a singular entity. Yeah, and, and I think the smart thing to do is to admit defeat. <laughs> I mean, I, I think you just have to admit that you're not going to get it. I'm always bemused by people who, who, who fly in and out once every two years Whenever something. something happens. Yeah, and, and have something to say. And then I met someone the other day who said, well, you know, I write a lot about China and I fly in every so often, but I'm now writing a lot about India. And I'm like, okay, so, so you did China, now you're going to do India? So I've got, Which you know, is 12 different countries in itself. Yeah, so, you know, like, I just, I, you know, I just don't think it's, it, it, it's possible to do that properly. Um, I mean, maybe I'm kind of old school and believe that you need to specialize a little bit. And it is useful. When, when my time in China, I mostly specialized on what we called the consumer market, which didn't really exist when we called it the consumer market, but of course has become massive. And I thought watching how people shop, how they spend their money was fascinating because then you see what their houses are like. You see what car they want to buy, where they want to go on holiday, what clothes they want to wear, what they like to spend their leisure time doing. And that, I think, helps you get under the skin of, of China a little bit. So that was quite a smart move as well. I mean, you could have studied steel or coal or something, but, you know, 
I have to say, I know people who study coal mines will tell me I'm talking nonsense, but to me, one coal mine looks very much like another <laughs> coal mine, whereas one consumer doesn't look like another consumer. Everyone has tastes and trends and they're fans of this or that, and that, that's sort of fascinating. Which, which, is, which, is, which is a great little segue to bring me to your book, actually, because, and, and then before I get into the story, um, there's something you do in your book which is quite fascinating, and I couldn't figure it out until you just mentioned that, but the shopping excerpts mm. in well, the book... Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I wanted ways to push the plot forward. And, and, and one of them was that, you know, in the 1930s in, in Shanghai, there, there was this newspaper called The Shopping News, and it basically was full of adverts for different shops. And I just think one of the ways to really get into history and get into a time is to look at advertising and, and the sort of ephemera of, of shops and what people were doing and what streets looked like. So I wanted to include all of that, because I think when you write historical well, non-fiction or literary historical non-fiction. You're trying to use everything, not just the writing, right. but any adverts you can show, any photographs you can show, maps, everything. You're, you're trying to do the whole thing to help people time travel a little bit, to sort of lose themselves in that period completely. And of course, it was a fantastic look into the psychology of behavior at the time and what kind of advertising really worked on people, mm. uh, what they were, what, what appealed and also what they were buying. Getting to the book itself, tell me about the subtitle. You call it a Shanghai noir. Well, I think, I think noir, which is that sort of subgenre of crime writing. So, you know, you have sort of traditional crime writing, which is sort of like Agatha Christie. So a murder happens, a detective solves the murder, right. the murderer is arrested, and so the world is put right again. But in noir, it's a little more complicated. It is that everybody's alienated from each other, the modern city you know, uh, creates all of its problems. And we're all sort of guilty in one way or another. I mean, we might not actually be murderers or corrupt politicians, but we all sort of tolerate this. We all sort of let it happen, right? And so therefore, we're all guilty. And I think that although noir is often associated with Los Angeles or Berlin or somewhere, I think Shanghai, because it was this international city, because it was, you know, it had... Um, uh, all, it was the fourth largest city in the world in the 1930s because it had all these Chinese people from all over China. And then it had all these foreigners that came there to, to trade and to do business. And to run away. And to run away from the long arm of the law at home and to try and make every Chinese a Christian. There were the missionaries as well. All of those people were there. And as you walked around the city, you had, you know, half of the police force was Sikh recruited in from India, the big tall Sikh traffic cops and so on. So this incredible city where everyone was in a sense alienated, but in a sense in a sort of nowhere. They weren't really in China, but they weren't really in a European city, even though it was sort of administered by white people. It wasn't really, it wasn't empire in the sense of it wasn't a colony, it wasn't the Raj in India, it wasn't Hong Kong or Singapore. Well, from your book, it felt like the Wild West. It was the Wild West. And, you know, Casablanca, the film everybody knows, is really a Hollywood invention. Shanghai was the only city in the world where you didn't need a passport and you right. didn't need a visa. So you could walk down, as, as the characters in my book who were real did, you could walk down the gangplank, gangplank of the ship and give whatever name you wanted. Well, the only thing is in your book... If we're comparing it to Casablanca, I couldn't find a Rick. Yeah. I couldn't no. find a selfless hero. Yeah. And I think that's part of the Hollywood thing, because I just don't believe in selfless heroes. <laughs> I mean, I've never met anyone like that. Right? You know? but, but tell me about your protagonist, because, first of all, Lucky Jack and Dapper Joe are such mm. great names yeah. that you're already invested in the story. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, um, Dapper Joe, uh, Joe Farron, was actually born Josef Polak in, in the Jewish ghetto of Vienna. And he was a, a dance choreographer and a dancer. And he came to Shanghai and changed his name to Joe Farron, which he felt was more sort of uh, westernized for, for uh, Shanghai. And he created these incredible nightclubs. 
But in order to make more money, he wanted to create a casino. So he met Lucky Jack. Lucky Jack was not born Jack. His name was Jack Riley, but that isn't the name he was born with. He created that name for himself after he escaped from prison in America, Oklahoma State Penitentiary, got on a ship, came to Shanghai, and brought the concept of the slot machine, you know, the, the one-armed bandit, the buggy machine, whatever you call it. Everyone knows the sorts of machines. You see racks and racks off in Las Vegas and Macau. And he brought those to Shanghai. And he made a fortune. Yeah. So Jack could run the casino. Joe could run the nightclub. Between them in Shanghai, where there were hardly any regulations and no laws, really, they could create the biggest casino Asia and perhaps the world had ever seen. And they actually did it. Yeah. And uh, But. But. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. I mean, no spoilers. <laughs> but what was great about these characters in particular was how much information you had about them. And I was curious because... I know in Malaysia and Singapore, we're, we're, we're quite terrible at keeping records. We're not like the British. The mm. British record everything. Yeah. What was it like finding this information in China? Are the Chinese the same, and did you have access to those kind of records? Well, I was very lucky with Shanghai because uh, all of the records, although the city was international, it was largely run by the Brits. So pretty much everything was shipped out with this mad mania for record keeping that the British have. So if you go to the UK National Archive at Kew, which is enormous, or you go to the British Library or the yeah. British Museum, there are just phenomenal amounts of records, very little of which has been digitized because there's just so much of it. I must say the Chinese also have extremely extensive records, but for political reasons, some of it is hard to access, and they probably, for financial reasons, digitized even less of it. Mm -hmm. So getting in and out of their archives is slightly different, even though I'm talking about a period that really isn't politically very contentious for today. Um, it's just the mass of stuff and searchability. Um, so yes, everybody keeps everything. And although I write mostly about people from the underworld, the underbelly of society, of course, they do get caught, hmm. which means there are police records. Right. There are court records. Um, they do kill each other, which means there are autopsy and medical records. Um, even, even so, they still sometimes have to apply for passports, which mean there are passport records. When they get on ships to go from one place to another, it's recorded. And all of that stuff is very easy to get now. It's amazing what you can get, which is why if you're looking to go back into old, old cold cases, if you like, um, which is what I kind of do, even 80 years ago, even in China, uh, with all the change that's happened, there's stuff you can dig up now that just the police couldn't dig up at the time. Yeah. And that's through going to a lot of art. You can't do it all on the internet. You can do an awful lot on the internet now without actually sort of even getting out of bed. But you still do have to travel and go to archives, which is why I'm here, because the, the National Library here, here in Singapore has phenomenal records. Yeah. And I'm over there this week talking about how to use their records as well, because the records there are not just about Singapore. The newspapers in Singapore reported all sorts of people arriving by boat, all sorts of people are leaving, leaving by boat. And I've discovered a lot here in Singapore that I wouldn't have found either in England or in China. You know, Hong Kong, again, has very good records. So, so it's kind of, you know, you have to travel and, you, and, you know, there's no other way of doing it except going into the library here and spending a day going through newspapers. And of course, these two individuals were famous. They were famous during in their, their time. time so. Yes, they were reported about in the newspapers. Exactly. So newspapers are a wonderful resource, particularly the Shanghai newspapers, which the, the Chinese newspapers at that time were more like the kind of British tabloids today. I mean, celebrity gossip, you know, covering murders in great detail, corruption, sin, you know, um, uh, which politician was sleeping with, with which other politician's wife. And, you know, that kind of thing was, was really what they loved writing about. So the newspapers are very easy to read and are just full of gossip. Yeah. And that must have made your life a little easier, especially when trying to craft a story that is yeah. 
kind of plotty and twisty and gossipy. Yeah, and you want detail about people. You, yes. you, you want them to describe people. And, you know, they were very sort of almost bitchy about people. You know, if, if a woman was blonde but dyed her hair, they'd say, like, she was a bottle blonde, you know. And they, um, uh, so so they, they loved celebrity. They would describe people's quirks and they would have funny quotes from people. Um, and, and just sometimes things that would really be libelous quite libelous if we put them in the newspaper today. But they sort of got away with it in that legally light sort of era. But all of that, of course, is anecdote, fascinating anecdote for the writer. There are all these secondary characters as well in your novel. Oh, can I call it a novel? Well, I'd rather you didn't. Okay. <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> it's his, literary non-fiction. Yeah, so historical literary it's, it's, non-fiction. There's no invented characters. There's no invented yes. places. There's no invented clues. Yes. But it's written in the style of a novel. All right. So, but there's photos there, so it's all real. In your book, the secondary characters are absolutely fascinating as well. And I can't remember his surname, but Carlos... The tequila oh, Carlos smuggler? Garcia. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. Well, not a lot of people know that, that during Prohibition in America, you know, when they banned alcohol. That it was all going through right. China? So everybody knows the story of all the whiskey coming yes. across from Scotland and uh, Ireland through Canada, down the south coast. The Correct. Kennedy, Kennedy family running all the whiskey. That's and how we've they seen made the untouchables, you know. And Boardwalk Empire <laughs> exactly. and everything. Yeah, so we've all seen that. What people don't know is that there was so much money in booze that Carlos Garcia, who was a Mexican, who lived in Shanghai, but his family had tequila distilleries in Mexico. He shipped it from Mexico to Shanghai, where customs was really non-existent. They then put it in barrels marked pig bristles. And pig bristles at that time were one of China's main exports because they were used for toothbrushes. That, that was what the, the, you know, before plastic, that, that's what the toothbrushes were made from. And then they would ship it from Shanghai to the west coast of America. That's 14,000 mile round trip. Right, And it would go into the speakeasies and the illegal bars of, of Los Angeles and San Francisco and all down the West Coast. And they made fortunes. I mean, millions and millions. It was like, you know, narcos now uh, in Mexico making money off of drugs. They made so much money shipping tequila to America. And that story really is very little known. Everybody thinks about it coming into the East Coast. Correct. From Europe or down from Canada. But no, there was this whole route coming in from China as well. There is so much ingenuity in criminal behavior that you highlight in your book. Well, opium, I think, is the other one that fascinated me. I'd never really realized, you know, there, once prohibition ended and, and alcohol became legal, organized crime in America needed something else. Something else, yeah. So that's when really the drug explosion that we're still living with today starts. Um, and of course, people always talk about the amount of heroin and so on that was in America. But you think to yourself, people never seem to think, where does it come from? I mean, there, are, there aren't vast opium fields in the United States. Yeah. So where does it come from? Well, the answer was it come from China, of course. And um, how did it get there? Well, it got there in all sorts of ways, but one way it got there was by um, foreign criminals that were there shipping it with uh, women who, the, who they, they put on boats. And they put them straight across via Japan to uh, the West Coast, and they put them via Suez and Europe to, uh, to, to the East Coast. And at that time, of course, it was considered very rude to search a woman when she got off a boat. So they were all able to carry it. And the other way they did it was, of course, the Marines that were in Shanghai protecting the American consulate there and so on, when they rotated back, they would make a little extra money carrying something back. So we know that during the 1930s, there, was a, there were several busts of what at that time would have been $350,000 worth of that. Well, to, in today's money, right. 
that's enormous. Now we know everywhere in the world that the amount of drugs that get stopped at ports is very, very small probably compared to what actually gets, gets into true. the country. Yeah. Right? So the amount, of mon the amount of opium that these guys were sending in to be refined by organized crime into heroin and, and sold across America was just, must have just been vast. And of course that fueled the start of this drug explosion in America, the, the, the war on drugs that's still going on. And of course now we have routes coming in from, uh, from Afghanistan and from Mexico up into America. But also this, this was coming out of Shanghai and often organized by French gangs into Europe, coming out of Indochina, you know, Vietnam now through Shanghai. And that's the original French connection. If you remember the movie, The French yes. Connection, that's much later. The French Connection starts kind of in the 1920s, in the 1930s, with French criminals in Marseille in league with French criminals in Saigon and Shanghai, thinking there's a lot of opium here. Well, let's ship it straight through to Marseille. Marseille, as you know, pretty criminal, <laughs> famously criminal port. You could ship there and distribute across the whole of Europe and from Europe to the East Coast into New York and Boston and, and those East Coast ports. Tell me about one other character, um, Cabbage. Cabbage Mo. Cabbage Mo. Cabbage Mo. Ca Cabbage Mo is interesting because he was a what they called a Shum Chun triad at the time. And I've sort of come across, you know, there's lots of places in China that have changed their name, you know, Peking to Beijing, uh, Canton to Guangzhou, these ones we know. But um, I'd never come across Shum Chun. It took me a long time to work it out, but Shum Chun was a tiny village on the border of China and Hong Kong, British Hong Kong at that time, that is now part of the giant megalopolis of Shenzhen down there on the, on the coast. Um, and he was a triad. And traditionally, he had smuggled drugs across the border from China into, you know, smuggling between British Hong Kong and, and China. But also he, one, the great sort of shadow over this entire book and this entire period of history is the Japanese invasion of, of China, of course, in, in 1937 through to 1945. And he worked with the Japanese. So they allowed him to come up to uh, Shanghai and just really sort of gave him a concession. Hmm. Like you might have a concession for sort of Starbucks or McDonald's or something. They kind of franchised drug distribution. Which and, is what the British used to do on a different level. Is, the yeah. British used to do it, yeah, of course, you know, pretending it was the God's work, but, but really just, you know, the biggest ever, you know, narco organization ever. Well, this guy was doing it, but what the Japanese wanted to do once they attacked China was they wanted as many Chinese as possible to become drug addicts, right? because they felt that, uh, number one, they would make the money, right. a tax on all the drug sales, which they would use to fund their occupation of China. They didn't want Tokyo to have to pay for all of this. Right. They wanted to make the money from taxes. Cunning. And the other reason was, equally cunning, was the more Chinese they could turn into opium addicts, the less there would be a will to resist <laughs> the Japanese occupation, right? The, the sort of free China guerrillas and everything. You know, this, this would be a problem if, ever, you know, this, this would destroy them if everybody was just hooked on drugs. And they even sold cigarettes, a brand of Japanese cigarettes called Golden Bat, uh, which was a very popular brand. And they discounted the price right down. And in the tip of each of the filter of the cigarette, they put a little bit of opium, not enough that you could taste it smell it so as you smoked your cigarette down and of course everybody smoked in those days right so as you smoked your cigarette down you got a little hit of opium well over a month two months three months smoking you know what did men smoke in those days 40 60 80 cigarettes a day right you became an opium addict you're hooked but you didn't even know you were becoming an opium addict you didn't actually have to go anywhere and, and smoke opium or inject opium or anything it happened to you gradually over time and that's like that's quite evil i mean that really is quite evil. that is yeah tell me this and there was one thing that i 
couldn't quite work out from your book, which was, with all of this happening, what did this do towards the Chinese attitude on foreigners? Well, it, it, it's always because been a, yeah, you're very balanced in that depiction. In that, cabbage mole, for example, meets a very unfortunate end, mm-hmm. and it was as retribution as opposed to yeah. anything else. And so, I'm not sure how they react to foreigners and how that's kind of over the years influenced their thinking about foreigners? Well, I think at the time, Shanghai was a place where obviously what we call the high pie culture, the east-west culture, it was a place where that met. So everything from fashions to clothing to to writing to film to all of these things that happened in Shanghai were very uh, were very much a kind of uh, a mix of the two things and, and, and therefore very modern. Shanghai embraced the modern, whether it be telephones or trolleybuses or lifts uh, or whether it be jazz or, or, or modern cosmetics or things like that. Um, so I think there was always a, there, and everyone in Shanghai particularly, I think, was united in, I mean, let's be frank, Shanghai then and now exists really only to make money. All mm. anyone is interested in in Shanghai is making money. All anyone was interested in then, white or Chinese, was making money, right? Um, so they had that in common. So they had that in common. And between them, with the connections there, you know, whether it's illegal, you know, booze to America in prohibition or drugs to America afterwards, or whether it's legitimate business dealing gold bullion, stocks and shares, or just shipping rubber backwards and forwards, everyone had an interest in having contacts there and contacts here, right? You know, so so that it worked very well that way. Um, Incredibly capitalist. Yeah, and then of <laughs> course after 1937. China and most of the foreigners in Shanghai had a common enemy, which was Japan. Japan, yeah. And of course, by 1941, that was formalized. China, Britain, and America, as well as the Free French and others, were all in common fighting Japan across the Pacific. So um, it kind of worked quite well in a sense. It wasn't a very one-sided relationship as it had been before during the Opium Wars with just British gunboats going in and doing that. Of course, that's how Shanghai was created. And the contradiction of Shanghai, which I find endlessly fascinating, is it is created by violence. It is created by imperialism. British imperialism largely, but also involved in the opium trade with the Dutch and the Americans and the Spanish and everybody else. But what's interesting to me is it Shanghai becomes a place of refuge. First of all, for many Chinese escaping flood, drought, famine, the Taiping Rebellion, warlords who come to Shanghai where it's safe. It's a place where there isn't much censorship. So newspapers, the Chinese film industry and so on are there. Then we get about 130,000 Russians coming after the Russian Revolution in yeah. 1917 who lived there, stateless, what we call the white Russians or the emigre Russians. And then in the 1930s, when I'm writing about, we get about 40,000 European Jews coming, fleeing Hitler. Why? Because if they can get on a boat, they can get off at Shanghai, you know, and they don't have to say their name or where they've come from, and Shanghai doesn't care. Um, so we have all these refugees coming in. So it becomes a place of safety, a port of last resort, as they said at the time, even though it was created out of the, the nastiness of the opium war, first opium war. Yeah, so oh, that's really fascinating because I guess that openness and acceptance and commonality when it came to economics and mm. money and making money kind of brought everyone together. Oh, it's a capitalist fantasy. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you know, in those days before you had big trade shows and before you had big, uh, you know, 
the internet and Alibaba and Tencent right. and everything. I mean, you know, if you were making something in China that you brought down the Yangtze, pig bristles, for instance, if you had all your pig bristles and you brought them down the Yangtze from, from the interior to Shanghai, which is right at the end of the Yangtze, like Singapore here, you know, geography is destiny, as they say, right? You know, control the Malacca Straits, control the, 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 Yangtze, the head of the Yangtze. It comes down there. You need some guy from Britain or America to say, you know what, I want a million pig brussels because I've got a toothbrush factory in Manchester. Or I've got a toothbrush factory in Chicago. You know, so here's some money. I'll buy them, put them on my, take them off your ship, put them on my ship, and we go. So that flow of commerce needed needed that interaction. So foreigners were never uh, never particularly welcome when they came with gunboats, but of course were, were necessary to trade. One last thing: the devil in your title is it everyone? Yeah, the devil for me is everyone. I mean, of course, there is the, the, the Chinese phrase, the foreign devils. Correct. Right? Um, but also the Chinese at this time referred to the Japanese as devils, dwarf devils, as they called them, that came. Um, and the devil representing bad, evil, everything. But sometimes the devil's a bit cheeky, a bit fun as well. So, so the nightclubs, yes. the, the, the cabarets, the casinos, this is kind of, you know, naughty fun. It's, it's, it's sinful, the sin economy, right? You know, depending on how strict you are or otherwise, you know, drinking and smoking and watching dancing girls and spending your money on roulette wheels is, uh, is of course sinful, but a lot of fun. So, so devils just kind of encompasses different things at different times and you know a devil is a different thing to each person paul thank you very much it's been a pleasure that was author paul french he was one of the many featured authors at this year's edition of the singapore writers festival you can find his book city of devils a shanghai noah at all good bookstores it is a riveting read about a side of china you've never known you've been listening to bookmark this is bfm 89.9 Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.